If you have Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. Unlike Pastor Corey last night, I use paper. And it's only because I'm not tech savvy enough to believe that I won't somehow turn my iPad off in the middle of what I'm doing. With paper, I always know where it's at. 1 Kings chapter 17, we'll read the first seven verses. Just want to uh, introduce tonight a few of uh, my family members came with me. My wife, Melissa, and my mother-in-law, Marge. And then our youth pastor, Amanda, is here with us as well. So thank you guys for joining me. I love anniversaries. I love them. Because anniversaries are these opportunities where we get to take stock. Where we get to look back and relish everything that God's done while we sit and talk about everything He has promised that He is still working out in us. But anniversaries are these moments, as God spoke earlier through Pastor in the book of Ezekiel, they are these moments where we realize that if we don't live in today, our past is irrelevant and our future will never, ever get to us. And so we take these anniversaries and we gather up and we say things like, remember when it all started in the basement? And we say things like, remember all the things that he still said he's going to do? And we sit in this place and say, this is the proof. This is the proof. This spirit that is among us, this presence that hovers with us, this word that flows out of us. This is the proof that what he started, he is doing. And what he is doing, he will finish. You are the proof. We sit here tonight, 10 years in, the proof that what he said at the beginning was true and what he will do until the end is promised. We are the proof that God is good and that his love endures forever. You know, God is so generous. For me, sometimes when I come speak at a place for the first time, there are those nerves about what to expect. What are the people like? What is the atmosphere like? How hard will I have to work? And God's so generous that you have these moments where it's just like he reads the anxiety of your heart. And he says, trust me. Trust me. I I brought you here. Trust me. I tell our congregation probably several times every single week that no matter what we don't know, there are two things we can be count on. The Lord is good and his love endures forever. So tonight as I stood here in the presence of God worshiping with you and all of a sudden you begin to sing, the Lord is good, he whispers, trust me. And his love endures forever. He says, I brought you here. Trust me. He's generous. He's generous, even with his whispers. I love anniversaries, and I pray tonight that we will have this time together to give thanks for what has been and to look forward with excitement about what will be, but above all else, to stand where we are right now and declare the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Tonight, I want to take my time to talk to you about the process of God. 
He has a very specific process that he leads all of us through. And I'm praying to use a couple of biblical examples tonight just to show you God's process so that you can see that you are indeed right where you were meant to be. No matter what stage of the process you're in, he is in it with you. 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, reading from the New King James says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here, and turn eastward, and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, he can command the birds to bring it to you. I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. I love Elijah. He's one of my favorite men in the Bible. In fact, I am so moved by who Elijah is that my wife and I named our second son after him. I love that James chapter 5 teaches us that Elijah is our New Testament example of fervent prayer. And yet at the same time, by looking into his life, we get to see that he is an example of how to pray in righteousness and fervency. And yet he's a man whose weakness is not hidden from us. Elijah had enough faith to do exactly what God told him to do, but still somewhere in him was enough weakness to run away when God's plans didn't go exactly as he thought that they should go. As James said, Elijah was a man just like us. See, tonight the only difference between you and Elijah is that Elijah's story is already written and yours isn't finished yet. The only difference between Elijah and us tonight is that our plans in God's hands have yet to be fulfilled. God's process always begins with a promise. God's process always begins with a promise. Abraham was promised a great nation. Joseph was promised that he would lead his family. David, as we heard last night, was not just promised, he was anointed to be the next king of Israel. The disciples were promised that they would become fishers of men. The apostle Paul, when he was still Saul of Tarsus, was promised that he would go stand in front of kings and Gentiles, as well as Jews, and he would suffer much for the kingdom. God's process always begins with a promise. The generosity of God is such that he doesn't just give commands, he offers us promises. See, God doesn't just want us to serve him in fear, he wants us to learn how to follow him in trust. 
God doesn't want us to linger at a safe distance. He wants us to come up close to him, believing that the nearer we get, the better we'll understand him to be. See, God is so good that you can recognize it from a distance, but he's also so good that the nearer you get, you become overwhelmed by how much better he is than you thought he was when you stood back at a distance. Remember, Isaiah tells us that in the throne room of God that there are cherubim and seraphim and that they are flying around and with two wings they cover their feet and with two wings they cover their faces and with two wings they fly and they are eternally shouting out to each other, holy, holy, holy. How good is God that the two created beings that never leave his presence also never stop being amazed by his goodness. See, they're not singing a song God told them to sing. They're telling each other. It's as if every time they come around the throne again, they are completely awestruck by what they just saw, and they've got to tell somebody. So let me tell the one who's on the other side, he's about to see goodness he didn't see before. He's so good that the nearer you get, the better he seems. And so God, rather than just standing firm and giving us commands, he comes to us in gentleness, offering us promises. Because he doesn't want us to be a people who stay far off. He wants us to be a people that come close. And so generally when God meets us, he does it with a promise. God knows our hearts He knows what we need, what we desire, even what we're lacking. God knows how he created us, and yet he stays aware of how sin may have stained us. God is not far off, and so he's mindful of how our enemy attacks us. And so he does not simply work to get us to do his bidding, or to accomplish his tasks, or to be his servants. God works to restore what he created. God works to put our relationship back together. God works to return us to the fellowship that he'd created us for. God created us because he wanted to be with us, not because he had stuff he wanted to do. See, if we look real closely at Genesis 1 and 2, man was not created to do work. Work was created so man would have something to partner with God in. Listen to me. God didn't say, I got this this planet, I need someone to take over. God created us and said, what can we do together? How can I join them with me? How, what job could God not do better than us? And so anything he puts in our hands, it's not because he needs it done. It's because he wants us to do it with him. He is a father who created us for fellowship and then creates the opportunities for us to live in fellowship. As John told us about Jesus in John chapter 2 verse 25, he says, Jesus knew what was in man. So this means that everything that Jesus did and everything that God continues to do is completely based on what he knows about our hearts. His promises are based on his character and what he sees in our hearts. God's process always begins with a promise. See, God knows us. Psalm 139, that's what it's all about, is that how well God knows us. Jesus said that our Father knows the number of hairs that are on our head. God knows us, and we have to get will- become willing to move from the fear of being known 
to the rest of being known. See, we're afraid of being known because we think there's a place to hide. God wants us to know there's nothing to hide. He's already known it all. He's already seen it all. He's already paid for it all. And so there's this place that if we keep hiding, it's not harming him. It's only harming us because he knows already. God knows us. He knows that it's the promise that we will leave everything for. He knows how we're built, and so he knows that it's the promise that we're willing to chase. It's the promise that keeps us connected to him during our difficult days, and it's the promise that gives us the fuel to start our journey. See, our struggle is somewhat simple to explain. Most of us are willing to leave. We're willing to take that big step of faith for the sake of the promise. But we rarely realize that the promise is only the beginning of the process. See, promises are not complete, so they can't sustain us. They may be enough to get us started, but they are rarely enough to keep us going. Promises are exciting. In fact, sometimes promises even seem enticing. But the truth is, a promise is only as good as the character of the person who made the promise. Hear me. Doesn't matter how great the promise sounds. If the one who's making the promise can't bring it to pass... It's just a dream. And I'll be real honest with you guys. We've started talking too much about dreams in church when God offers promises. He doesn't need me to think of things I can do for him. He needs me to come close enough so he can whisper what he wants to do in me. That's what a promise is because his character is faithful to what he says he will do. A promise is only as good as the character of the one who offers it to us. See, from the moment the promise is given, God then begins working in our hearts and in our lives, not to teach us that the promise is possible, but to teach us that the one who made the promise is faithful. This is all about learning who God is, not what God can do. It's all about learning his character, not learning his power. Most of us already know God's power. Even those who don't love God or serve God or even believe in God, at some point in their lives will say, if there is a God, why doesn't he do this? Meaning, if there is a God, he has power, but I don't know his character at all. Guys, we are lacking in understanding the character of God. We know what he can do. What we need to learn is what is he willing to do. What is his heart like, not just what are his hands like. God gives us promises to keep us close to his heart, not to set us off in some attempt to fulfill our purpose or find our destiny. When he gives a promise, he wants us to say, now that you've promised, I'm hanging on to you until you bring it to pass. Too many of us come to God like he's giving instructions that we need to go out and do. He's not giving instructions, he's giving promises. And so what he's saying is, come close and stay close. I'm doing this in you. You're not doing it for me. In fact, some of our promises are delayed because we heard them and ran off trying to do them rather than staying with the one who said he had them in his hands in the first place. See, Abraham's relationship with God started before he was even named Abraham. And it started with a promise. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 through 3 is our first recording of God speaking to Abram. And God says, get out of your country, from your family and your nation, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We often talk about Abram's great faith, and we should. The scripture tells us that he's the father of our faith, that his faith was counted to him by God as righteousness, but we also need to make sure we talk about God's great promise. See, we have a tendency to read these verses and we jump ahead to what we know the outcome was, that there was a child that became God's chosen nation. But what about in the moment Abram hears the promise? Abram is 75 years old without a child. And God comes and speaks and says, leave everything you know and everywhere you've ever been because I'm going to make you a nation. How are you going to make me a nation when I can't even start a family? Please don't measure what God said by what you have in your hands right now. When God says things, it's not because he knows what you've got. It's because he knows what he's going to give. We do have to be good stewards, but we have got to be faithful children that know his character enough to say, just because it's impossible doesn't mean he's not going to do it. In fact, I'll stay close enough to him just to see what exactly he thinks he's going to do. See, there's more to Abram's story than we give credit to or that we even give understanding to most of the time. The name Abram actually means exalted father. And so in biblical times, it was measured by the community, you are blessed according to how many children you had. And if you had no children, it meant you were cursed by God or there was some sort of sin hidden in your life that was keeping God from giving you the blessing that you desired. In biblical times, your name described your character. So Abram is named exalted father, but he has no children. See, the name and the character continue to go hand in hand. That's why it's so important that we make sure we know what God is calling us before we call ourselves anything. Because the name and the character, they're equal to each other. They go with each other. This is actually what Jesus was trying to teach us when he told his disciples, anything you ask in my name, my Father will give to you. What Jesus was saying was, anything you ask according to my character, anything you ask that is already in my plans, that I've already promised, anything you pray for that I'm already sitting at the Father's right hand praying for, those are the things that my Father is going to do for you. In Jesus' name is not some sort of magic words that we throw in at the end of our prayers to make sure we get what we've asked for. In Jesus' name is a reminder that we would filter all of our desires through Jesus' heart and Jesus' love and Jesus' character. That before I ask it, I better sit and say, is Jesus asking this for me? Because those are the prayers that my Father answers. Can you imagine what Abram's life must have been like to be called exalted father but never have any children? Every time his name got called. I know some people who don't care for their name. I know people who have changed their name because they didn't like the sound of it or it brought back really bad memories of places where that name was abused or they were abused under that name. Can you imagine every time Abram's name is called, hey, father, he's reminded, I have no children. But not only why do you call me what I don't have, why do you call me what I so desperately want to be? 
I don't think we understand Abram's plight. We just act like God just kind of plucked him out and gave him a child and moved along. We don't understand where his heart was. We don't understand what he went through. We don't understand the brokenness that was within him. We don't understand his story because all we focus on is his promise. But God made him a promise because of his story. God made him a promise not to be a nation but to be a father. Because God knew what was broken inside of him. God knew what was missing. God knew what he was praying for and longing for. God knew what he was waiting for. Imagine the shame of every single day coming and going, knowing what you call me is what I cannot be. See, I believe that when God spoke to Abram, it was easy for him to leave. I personally believe that when God said, get up out of here, Abraham said, I've been waiting. Because this is a fresh start. This isn't me leaving my homeland. This is me leaving my shame and my disappointment. This is me leaving my brokenness. This is me starting over where nobody knows what my name means and what I don't have. It is easy for me to get up and go, not because of the promise, but because I need to get away from what's been chasing me. Guys, sometimes that first step of faith, if we're really honest, has nothing to do with where we're going, and it has everything to do with what we're leaving. Can I just be honest? That's not a step of faith. Sometimes what we are calling faith is an escape. It's just us trying to get away. It's us believing that, okay, I will go. I'm ready to go because i got to get away from that. And the whole time God's saying, that's fine, but I'm going to lead you in a way you don't understand yet. Because what I've got to do is not something for you until it is what I have finished doing in you. There's a work that has to be done in us before he can start the work that he wants to do through us. See, Abram wasn't just leaving his family. He was leaving, he thought he was leaving his brokenness. He was not just setting out from Haran. He was leaving behind the reputation of having a name that he could not live up to. Tonight, some of us are trying to get away. Let me make you a promise. You will not stay where you are forever. But you cannot leave where you are until you let God deal with what's going on inside of you. Or else you will take shame everywhere you go. And you will take disappointment everywhere you go. And every fresh start will end in the same old ending. And so don't believe faith is getting out. Faith is holding on until what needs to be fixed is fixed inside of you. And so Abram launched on a journey that would end in faith, but started in desperation. And yet God is so generous that he lets us go even when we've gone for the wrong reasons. See, God's promises are not just about his plans. They are also about our hearts. Sometimes they're even about our hurts. God's plan was not to just use Abram to sire a nation, but it was to heal Abram of all of his broken places. God's promises are only the beginning of his process because his plans are not just to work through us, but he plans to work in each and every one of us. See, the will of God is not what we've made it out to be. I have too many people afraid of God's will as if they've somehow missed it or they're going to wander away from it. Too many people coming and asking me what God's will is as if God doesn't make it clear and plain to them himself. God's will is not what we've made it out to be. Forgive me for a minute tonight, and I don't mean to harm anybody's theology, but God's will is not where you go to school, or where you get a job, or where you buy a house, or even where you go to church. 
All of those things will be found in God's will, but none of those things, not even all of those things together, are God's will. Jim Elliott, a missionary that was martyred by the people he was trying to reach in Ecuador, once wrote, The will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargain for. What he means is when you say, God, have your way, he says, you don't even know what you're asking for. But I will. The will of God is always a bigger thing than we bargain for, Eliot continues. But we must believe that whatever it involves, it is good, acceptable, and perfect. That means that how you got here may not be what you'd call good, but it is good for you to be here. Do you understand what I'm saying? God's not looking down at Abram saying, I am so glad you're childless. But God's saying, in your childlessness, I'm about to show you something you would have never known if I would have let you have children earlier on in the process. He's doing far more than you and I will ever understand. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God's desire, God's plan, God's will for everyone that has ever been or will be born is very simple. It is redemption. God's will is that you would not perish, but that you would have everlasting life. So that is God's first priority. You may never preach, but as long as you're redeemed, you have started to taste his will. See, we were all born to be redeemed. I believe that Paul sums this up for us very clearly in Romans chapter, 20, chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. We can all quote verse 28, but I don't believe we understand verse 29. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. See, what this means is that in the midst of everything that is happening in our lives, God is working. He's even taking all of those things and He's turning them. He's using them to make us more like Jesus. And so when you face things and you say, why, Lord? The answer is clear, to make you more like Jesus. When you say, why do I have to go through this? Because it will make you more like Jesus. How long do I have to wait until you look more like Jesus? Because everything that God's doing in your life and my life is very simple. It's to make us like Jesus. Because he's not interested in lesser children. He wants us all to be what we were meant to be. Like Jesus. Genesis 1.26 tells us very simply, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Well then what does Colossians 1.15 say? Jesus the Son is the image of the invisible God. So if we were made in God's image, and Jesus is God's image, then what were we made to be? Like Jesus. And so everything you see of Him in Scripture, that's what you were meant to be. Everything He walks in, you were meant to walk in it. Every attitude He had, you it's your attitude as well. Every thought process, every prayer, everything about Jesus is meant to be everything about you. It's how you were made, and it's what you're being redeemed into. We were created to be like Jesus. 
It means that how God created us is how Jesus is redeeming us. So that means that the will of God for you and for me and for everyone that ever will be is very simply that we become like Jesus. And God is so faithful to his purposes that he will use anything and he will take us anywhere to accomplish that purpose for our lives. His promises are not just about what he wants to do through us. They are first and foremost about what he desires to do in us. The promise only begins the process. Once we are willing to hear God's promise, then he starts the preparation. So the first thing I'll tell you tonight to do, hold firm to the promise and get ready to surrender to the preparation. The promise takes a strong grip. The preparation takes a strong, strong surrender. Because what he's going to do is not what you thought he would do. And it's certainly not the way you would do it if you were the one in charge. Going back to 1 Kings 17, we don't know what Elijah's promise is. All we know is that when the Bible introduces him to us, he is standing in front of King Ahab, telling him that God said it would not rain anywhere in the land until Elijah said so. That in itself is a pretty great promise. But i got to believe that God added something personal for Elijah because he does that for all of us. Essentially, what Elijah was doing was declaring God's promise in his life to Ahab. Elijah was saying, God has promised me that it won't rain again until God tells me that it's time for it to rain. See, there is power in the promise, but that power rises exponentially when we start declaring God's promises to the people that live around us. It's one thing to hear from God and get up and go leave and go believe what he's going to say. But when we start hearing from God and announcing to the people that live around us what God is saying and what God's going to do, our faith begins to rise in a measure that we don't even understand and I'm not sure we could calculate it. As pastors in churches, we now refer to this as vision casting. It's when we begin to, to speak what God has spoken to us. See, God births a ministry by giving a promise, but then he prepares the people to walk out for his purpose. See, that's what God's doing in my life, and that's what he's done in pastor's life, and that's what he's doing in all of your lives. And here, corporately, in the life of High Place Church, there is a promise that he has started you with, and the preparation is what is leading you to the purpose. That's the process. From promise to preparation until we have finished in purpose. Here's our problem. The longest part of the journey is the preparation. The promise is exciting. The purpose is what we live for. The preparation is what takes a lifetime. And yet all of the goodness is found in the middle of that preparation. The promise is sure, but the preparation is sometimes painful. Do not stop declaring the promise when the preparation is longer or more difficult than you thought it would be. Please, please, please do not deny what you know God has said because it hasn't gone the way you thought it would go. Too many of us stop and say, maybe I didn't hear from God. Let me tell you, you did. You've heard from God. 
You may not know what the journey looks like, but you've heard from God. You know what the promise is. Do not shrink it. Do not let it go. Do not turn away from it. Do not bury it. You keep declaring it. And I don't care what anyone says. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how foolish you feel. That thing is coming to pass. And when it does, you will know God did his purpose. Do not allow the preparation to rob you of the promise. Let him do his work. Abram heard from God. He trusted God. He believed God. He left his family and his homeland. He went to the land that God showed him. You've all heard this, but I don't know how often we think about it. From the time God said, get up and go, to the time Isaac was introduced is 25 years. What took so long? And here's the problem for Abram. He's 75 when the thing starts. It's one thing if, you know, he's 18, you're going to have a kid. All right, 25 years, that's all right. I've already passed childbearing. When it started, I was past childbearing. 25 years, what took so long? If God gave Abram the promise, why did it take so long for God to give Abram the son? See, here's what I believe, and I'm pretty steadfast in this. God's timing is all based on our character. God's timing is all wrapped up in our character. And so when things are taking long, it's not because God is delaying. It's because God is being faithful to what he's always faithful to. Our hearts and our lives, because he doesn't put new wine in old wineskins. Why? There's two reasons. He won't waste the wine and he won't lose the wineskin. So what God is saying about you and to you is, I've got something better. But until you can handle it, I'm not losing you and I'm not wasting my wine. You let me work. And when it's time, when you can handle it I will pour it out and it will overflow but I will not lose you in the process it's not God's judgment it's God's mercy the delays of God are not God with his arms folded saying I'm not doing it till you get better it's God saying I love you too much to see you harmed I will give it when you can handle it God's timing Is all about our character. Please don't hear that negatively. Hear it as a beautiful father saying, I have the cattle on a thousand hills, but I'm not releasing them until you can handle them. Because I can get more cattle, but I won't let them destroy my children. See, unlike God, we're not afraid of losing resources. Excuse me, he's not afraid of losing resources like we are. We're afraid if I give it all, where am I going to get more? God's only concerned with us. Because he can make more of anything he wants to make. But he's faithful to us. Faithful to our hearts. Faithful to our lives. Faithful to his promises to us and his relationship with us. And so when God delays, don't say, why am I not ready? Say, thank you, Father, for not putting me in a place that I could not handle and letting me be harmed. He's gracious in the waiting see that means that patience isn't about us learning to wait it's learning that we're loved hear me patience isn't learning to wait it's learning that we're loved because if I know that the waiting is about being loved then what is it to wait 
I can sit back and say, keep loving me. Just keep loving me however long it takes, Father. You keep loving me, and I'll know when it's time when it bursts forth from your hands. It took Abram 25 years before he became Abraham, and he became the father that God said that he was going to be. See, God isn't just trying to do things in our lives or even through our lives. God is working to make us like him. He's working to cast out all of our fears and destroy and defeat all of our anxieties. He's working to pull us out of darkness and to show us the beauty of his light. And he's working to change our hearts, not just so that he can use us, but so that we can know how incredibly much he has loved us. He is doing a good work. See, God is not just breaking bondage. He's leading us to freedom. And there is a large difference. A large difference. Israel left Egypt in slavery in a day, but they didn't become a nation that was willing to follow God in freedom for a generation. John chapter 8, verse 32 is a verse that everyone quotes. In fact, I heard it on a TV show last night after I left here. The truth will set you free. But we don't have any idea what that means. We talk about freedom like we can't wait to get it until we understand that I don't even know what freedom really is. I just want my chains off. And Jesus, God's trying to tell us, no, I want your heart free. Because you can have chains off and live in bondage. In fact, many of us are doing it right now. There's no chains, yet we don't know we're free to lead. When I was a teenager, we had this dog. My dad loved this dog, and the only person this dog loved was my dad. And she was mean. She was mean to everybody, and he took great joy in that, that he could tell her to growl at me, and she would. But this dog, I don't know what happened to her before we got her, but she was bloodthirsty. If she got off of her chain when she was outside, she would go until she caught something she could kill. And so she couldn't be outside unless she was on a chain because she was too strong to walk with a leash. And so there was one day that she'd been out on her chain for a while. And so I went out to get her to bring her back in the house. And I looked down and her chain had come loose, not from her collar, but from the post. And she didn't know it. She sat there all afternoon free. You hear me? She sat there all afternoon free, living in bondage. Guys, freedom isn't when the chains come off. Freedom is when our hearts change and our minds change. Freedom is when we become more like Jesus so that he can lead us, not just in his image, but into his will and into his plans. What Jesus actually said in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 was, if you abide, which means live, dwell in, continually find your shelter in my word, you are truly my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. So freedom comes from abiding in the relationship with God through Jesus until his word gets downloaded from his throne and gets thrown through our heads and into our hearts and then begins to spill out of our lives and that's when you know you're free. It's not because you heard the truth. It's not even because you told the truth. It's when the truth gets in you. Freedom is built. Freedom is built. 
takes time, even though bondage can be broken quickly. A short time before Isaac was born, more than 20 years after God had first promised Abraham a son, Abraham and Sarah moved south for the second time in their lives. Abraham got to a new territory and turns to Sarah and says, I don't know what these people are like. Tell them you're my sister. Which was only a half lie. She was his half-sister. He just wasn't mentioning the whole marriage thing. And so for the second time in 20 years, Abraham gave away the vessel of the promise to protect himself. God says to you, I'm going to give you a child and make you into a great nation. And you believe that. How do you give away the woman that God has chosen to tie you to that will carry that child that will become a great nation? How do you have enough faith to leave but enough fear to give part of it away? Did it twice. The second time, Abimelech, who was the king of Gerar, who was the king who had taken Sarah to be his wife because Abraham had told her that she's my sister, God came to him in a vision and says, I'm going to judge you and all of your house because of what you've done. You have taken a man's wife. Abimelech says, pleads with God, will you really judge someone who did what they didn't know? Pleads with him. He says, God, he told me, he told me that she was his sister. God speaks clearly to Abimelech and says, go give her back. And then you have to ask Abraham to pray for you. There's some things we can't explain. Other than God is faithful even when we are faithless. Because he will not deny his name as Paul told Timothy. So there's this place where then Abimelech gets up and he goes the next day and he takes Sarah back to Abraham and he says to him, what did you have in view that you have done this? Basically what he says is, what were you thinking? Why did you do this to me? And Abraham gives this whole speech. Well, I knew the people in your kingdom, they're not people who fear God. And so I thought that when they saw Sarah, that they would end up killing me so that they could take her as their wife. And so here's what I was thinking and here's what was going on. But then God does something where he probes Abram's heart. Psalm 139, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. What David is praying there is not, hey, God, see if there's anything going on in me. It's, it's David saying, God, show me what you know already. Show me what I'm blind to, but you've got a full vision of. Show me what still needs to be handled so I can become what you created me to be. And so somewhere in the midst of this whole thing, God begins probing Abram's heart, and he begins saying this. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to Sarah, this is your kindness that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So at the same time that Abraham said, Abram said, I've got enough faith to leave. He also said, I've got enough fear to not be sure this is going to work out. He leveraged the promise of God according to the fear of his heart. Why did it take so long? Because that's how much fear was in Abram's heart. 
Because God was not about to give the child of the promise to a man who was afraid that the one who makes promises can't keep them. Guys, there's beauty in this. There's beauty in this. What we see is God knowing Abram's heart and all along God coming and visiting him. God speaking to him. God calling him righteous. God changing his name. God using him for his glory. God having a relationship where he calls Abram a friend. And in the middle of all this, God looking and saying, but I know there's that fear. And I'm not going to finish this until that fear is dealt with. Because I'm not going to let my friend live in fear. I'm not going to let my son live in fear. I'm not going to let the father of my nation live in fear. Because I want him to know me as the the conqueror of his fears, not just the fulfiller of his promises. Some of us only know God as a provider. You need to learn him as a protector. You need to learn him as the lover of your soul. You need to learn him as the one who surrounds you and upholds you. You need to learn him as the one who sees everything in you and will never turn away. Abram needed to learn something about God he did not know yet. And so God let the promise linger until Abram found his freedom. As soon as Elijah announced God's promise to Ahab, and I'll try to go quick to finish this up. As soon as Elijah announced God's promise to Ahab, God spoke again and told Elijah that he needed to go hide by the brook Cherith. And God said there, you drink the water from the brook. I've ordered the ravens. They will bring you bread and they will bring you meat. Twice a day, every day, you will get meals that are fed by birds. Still amazes me because I get nervous that God won't provide some days. Some months it seems like the bills may not get paid and I start wondering, God, what are you going to do? He can send birds if he chooses to. He'll do whatever he chooses to do. If I'm going to believe he is who he says that he is, i got to start letting him do what he wants to do. And it's all based on what's in me, not what he's capable of. God's promises are always filled with his provision. It's often said that where God guides, he provides. And the scriptures are filled with truth of this nature. But what we see in, in uh, Elijah's life is something a little bit different. Every day for about a year, Elijah drank water from the brook and ate bread and ate meat that was brought to him from the ravens. But then in verse 7 it says, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So let me ask this. What do we do when we are where God told us to be And we are doing what God told us to do. And everything changes. How do we respond when the thing that we had become dependent upon suddenly stops being dependable? What do we say to God and about God when His purposes in this world around us begin to affect us and the promises that He has given us? Remember, why did the brook dry up? Because there had been no rain. Why did it stop raining? Because God told Elijah, declare a drought. Elijah probably never thought, I'm going to get thirsty in the middle of all this. Sometimes we get touched by God's purposes even in the midst of God's promises. Sometimes God has to offend our senses so that he can change our perspective. Sometimes God has to change everything so that we can see him do a new thing. Sometimes God has to move us out so that he can move us on. 
Elijah did everything God told him to do, and God did everything that he said that he would do. And then one morning, Elijah woke up, and nothing was the way it had been the day before. What do we do when the God who never changes chooses to change everything? This is one of the final steps of our preparation. It is when God begins to show us how he is going to use our promise to fulfill his purpose. See, the drying of Elijah's brook had nothing to do with God's lack of faithfulness or Elijah's lack of obedience. In fact, the drying of the brook had everything with God saying, I'm about to increase your territory. I'm about to use you to show more of my glory than you've ever been able to show before. I'm about to increase your audience. But before I can do any of this, I've got to dry up what you've become dependent upon. Before I can move you on, I've got to move you out. Before I can do something new, I've got to let what has been come to its conclusion. Before I open the new door, I'm going to have to close the old door. God is a good God who does things decently and in order, who does things faithfully and kindly. As soon as the brook dried up, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. God did not want Elijah worried or afraid. And so God spoke immediately and says, Go, arise, go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow there who is going to take care of you. Elijah did exactly what God said. The Bible says immediately that Elijah got up and he left. But you know why? Because there was no reason to stick around. Let's not make this about great faith. This is about great need. That's also part of why brooks dry up. Because God knows our hearts well enough to know that if I don't burn the bridge, they'll stand in the middle of it trying to figure out which way they should go. God knows Elijah well enough to know if there's water in the brook, he's not leaving. Why would he? We wouldn't. I've got this comfortable space. I'm hidden. Ahab hasn't found me here. I've got water. I don't even have to work for food. Birds deliver it every single day. Why in the world would I leave? So God knows. He speaks and the brook dries up and God says, it's time to move. Guys, sometimes things dry up because God knows us. We won't move until the things have gone dry. Sometimes seasons change. Sometimes relationships get stretched. Sometimes the thing is done. And God says, I know you'll sit longer than you're meant to sit. And so what I'm going to do is be generous. And I'm going to dry it all up so that you know it's time to move on. It doesn't mean the brook was bad. It means the season is over. We've got this terrible problem that we think as soon as something ends, it's because it was bad. No, it was so good it did its job. It finished the race. It finished the course. It did what it was meant to do. Move on with blessing. Move on with joy. If you're in some places now that you have been sitting in too long and you can say, there used to be life in this part of my life and now it's not here anymore. Your brook is dry. Move. Move with him. Nothing stunts our growth more than sitting in places where there's no more life. And I'm not talking about churches, please. I'm not talking about churches. Stay where you've been planted and grow. And stay through it. And stay in it and endure and persevere. I'm talking about our lives. Everything has a season. Which means everything will come to a conclusion. Celebrate the end so you can rightly enjoy the new beginning.
I believe we need to give as much thanks for closed doors as we do for open doors. Because what it means is it did its job. Thank you, God. Thank you for that season in my life. I may not have enjoyed all of it, but I must have gotten everything it meant for me to get. And now you're moving me forward. Elijah gets up and he goes to Zarephath. The Bible says that once he got there, he sees this widow and she's collecting sticks. And so he yells out to her. Elijah's sitting there thinking, this must be my... I'm not going to say what I was going to say. This must be my provision. And so he shouts out to her and says, woman, get me some water. And this woman, in all of her generosity and kindness, she just leaves what she's doing. And she's on her way to get water. And then Elijah gets real bold, and Elijah says, and bring me some bread, too. And that's when the wheels fall off the whole thing. And she stops in her tracks, water I got. She turns around, and she says, I can't do that. She says, all I've got is a little bit of flour in a bin and a small amount of oil in a jar. And right now I'm collecting a couple of sticks so I can go home and start a fire. I'm going to cook a little cake for my son and I. We're going to eat that and then we're going to starve to death. So God, you commanded a woman without food to feed me. We've all been there. God speaks what he's going to do, and all of a sudden we start to step into it, and we say, this must be the one that's going to do the thing. And then they say, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and so like Elijah must have wanted to sit there and go, do you know any other widows? <laughs> do you have any friends that might, I might be able to talk to? Because this certainly can't be where, why God sent me here. But Elijah's got enough Faith in the midst of his fear. Guys, you don't have to be absent of fear. You just got to have enough faith to quiet it for a second. Sometimes all it takes is a second. And Elijah says to her, he says, thus says the Lord. He says, you go home. And you take your little bit of flour and your little bit of oil and you make something for me. And then the Lord says that he will make sure that you never run out. And you will feed your son. And you will feed yourself. You see what happens? You see why the brook dries up? So that a widow finds out that God's always seen her. That a widow that's out there picking up sticks saying, God, why'd you let this happen to me? How come I can't even take care of my son? Already lost my husband, and here I am in the middle of nowhere, and there's nothing I can do. And along comes a prophet that says, God sees you, and he's heard you. In fact, God dried my brook up so I could come and feed you in the middle of your starvation. It's God saying, if you'll let go of what you want so bad, I'll give you enough that someone else will eat from it. That I will change somebody's life if you'll let me change yours first. Let go of what you think you have to have so somebody else can get what they already gave up on. That woman is waiting to die and God shows up and says, I'm bringing life. Because your brook dried Anybody got a dry brook tonight? 
It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the will of God and the glory of God and the plan of God to use your lack to become someone else's abundance. And so for two and a half years, that little bit of flour and that little bit of oil made two cakes every single day. Because Elijah's brook dried up. The things we curse are actually some of our greatest blessings if we'll get out of our own heads and let God's character take over our hearts. He is good. And his love endures forever. And this is where we come to the conclusion. Everything is about God's purpose. Everything. Why did God pull Abram out? Take him on a journey. Heal him of his shame. Give him a son and destroy all the fear that had lived in his heart for so long. Not to make a nation, but to give us a savior. It's always about redemption. Don't stop too soon when you read these stories. Take them to their conclusion. You and I are here, saved today, because God called Abram and gave us a redeemer. And so why do we get to meet Elijah? Why does God declare a drought? Because three and a half years after this all begins, Elijah's going to stand on Mount Carmel, surrounded by the prophets of Baal, and he's going to have a showdown to see who the living God is. And when God answers with fire, the scripture says that all of the people of Israel fell on their faces and declared, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Which means Elijah's promise and his preparation, his brook and his widow are all about one thing. Redeeming those who had wandered away. And so is yours. Every promise that God has made in your life is about redemption. Every bit of preparation he's doing in you right now is about redemption. And every purpose he has for you is about redemption. And so I'll share this with you tonight. I don't care where you are in the process. I do not care where you are in the process. The purpose is that Jesus would be glorified through you so that men could be redeemed by your witness. If you and I are who we say we are, if we are disciples, if we are witnesses, if we are the sons and the daughters of God, if we are those who long for redemption the way that we have received it, then we need to start laying everything down and saying, I trust your promise, but I surrender to your preparation. And I ask you, fulfill your purpose in my life. Save souls, transform neighborhoods, change generations. Do whatever you've got to do in me that souls would be saved. And so tonight... I know some of you are sitting here with dry brooks. I know it. It does not disqualify you. And it is not God's judgment upon you. It is God's purpose for you. Look around. Because there are people that need what you don't believe you have. But if you will give from your lack, and I'm not talking about money, if you'll give from your lack tonight, if you'll speak faith while you are wavering in doubt, if you will speak courage while you're standing in fear, if you will speak love while you are feeling ashamed, you will see the glory of God and you will see the redemption of men.
And so I challenge you tonight. I challenge you. Don't be a people who just shout the promises back and forth. And don't be a people who despise the preparation, believing that God will just do it all in his time. You are his time. It's all about your heart. But also, don't ever become a people that become about us. When Jesus has always been about all of us. Your purpose is that men would be redeemed through the way that you glorify Jesus. Would you stand with me, please?